Hey folks, this is the Contextual Insurgent Podcast, and I'm your host, Aaron Smith. I'm an activist and an analyst, a writer, and a sense maker. I'm a Republican, a former SFGOP Central Committee Delegate, where I was the Deputy Vice Chair of Communications. I was also a California GOP-endorsed State Senate candidate, where I managed to win 11% of the vote in San Francisco, which, trust me, is better than average. I've also been involved with the firearms community and Second Amendment rights. I was on the cover of Time Magazine in November of 2018 for their Guns in America issue, but I'm probably best known for my free speech activism and facing all of the hard lefties like Antifa in California and the Pacific Northwest since 2017. The general topic of this podcast series will be politics and the current culture war, as seen from my unique, rather hands-on experience and knowledge but also intend to include a practical element focused on giving you the conceptual tools to build towards true grassroots, nonviolent political change. You may have noticed lefties usually seem to get what they want regardless of how elections go, and I want to help you change that. This podcast is the nucleus of a larger contextual insurgency project, which also includes a weekly roundup substack newsletter that will go out starting every Monday with links to topical events and a short analysis. I plan to add a YouTube and website in the near future and expect more written content in various outlets. Producing this content is now my full-time job, and if you found this project helpful and my content worthy, I would love your support. I've dusted off my Patreon and I have a Cash App, and patronizing those would be greatly appreciated. My Cash App is $EESmith4, that's the number 4, and the Patreon is patreon.com backslash EESmith4. Again, that's the number 4. For the cost of buying me a mocha frappuccino at Starbucks, I can continue my work that ultimately is about helping you. Today we're going to talk about courage. Why courage is important, but why it's also not enough. If you want to get what you want, you need to be trained and prepared. There's a case I like to use to illustrate this point. And if you've heard me speak before at any event, there's a good chance you've heard me mention it. And if you're listening with someone else, please don't spoil it for them. Okay, let's go back to 1955 in Montgomery, Alabama. Segregation is the law of the land. One of the laws is that the public transit system has to be segregated. Blacks are required to sit in the back, and whites have a reserved section in the front. When there's more whites on the bus than there are seats, um, the first row for blacks is supposed to be vacated and turned over to whites. One day, a black lady is on the bus, sitting in her row, and she is ordered to give up her seat for a white person. She refuses, and the police are called, and she is arrested. At this point, you're probably nodding your head and thinking, yeah, you know exactly who this is. And we both know who you're thinking right now. You're thinking Rosa Parks. No, no, I'm not talking about Rosa Parks. I'm talking about Claudette Colvin. Rosa Parks is considered an icon and pioneer in the civil rights movement because her arrest kicked off a 13-month-long boycott of the Montgomery bus line system, Claudette Colvin, on the other hand, is at best a footnote in history because she was included in the Browder versus Gale lawsuit that ultimately desegregated the Montgomery bus line. Two identical stories, two wildly divergent outcomes. Today, for episode 9, we're going to explore exactly what happened in Montgomery in 1955 and see if there's any lessons we can find for today. I think what you'll find will shock you. Let me put it this way. Imagine I told you we needed to boycott your town's public transit system and that I needed you to print and distribute 52,000 leaflets and convince at least 25,000 people to join your boycott and that I also needed you to construct an alternative transportation network based around private cars to, to pick up at least some of the slack and that you had five days to do it in. Could you do it? Let's be honest, you couldn't. But what if you'd already been thinking about this boycott and already sketched out a plan for one? What if you already had drafts of your leaflet you just needed to add a date? How about having a local activist school that produced activists and organizers for you and you built a local network out of people that had graduated? What if all you needed was the right person at the right time and place? and you had everything else. Wouldn't that make a difference? If you haven't heard most of the stuff we're going to talk about today, and you probably haven't, that's totally fine. The history and the media don't like to talk about this stuff for two big reasons. 
First, it just makes the story less compelling and accessible. Your average person wants to hear some story about an everyday average individual having a moment of courage and standing up for themselves against some injustice. Finding out a trained activist network did something like that that's become iconic can be a little alienating. The second part is most of these people that are reporting and writing about this simply don't want to give the game away. They're mostly left-leaning and sympathetic towards this network, so popularizing knowledge that there's a billion-dollar activist industry that's driving most of the social change and public morality in this country is not something they're on board with. It's always a good idea to avoid Wikipedia for your research, and especially in this topic, anything involving like leftist organizing or leftist training or activism because it seems like they actively prune as many links as possible to the activism schools or training and background on this stuff, or they at least try to downplay it. But it's kind of interesting because you can go to a lot of the leftist organizer sites and training sites, and they will talk about a lot of this stuff that we're going to go over here very matter-of-factly. It really pays a lot of times, especially in these cases, as many primary sources as possible for this stuff. One good one, um, Joanne Robinson, her memoir, and we'll, we'll go over who Joanne Robinson is. She's a very important player in this. The Montgomery Bus Boycott and the Women Who Started It. That's a good read on a lot of the stuff that happens. There's Russell Friedman's Freedom Walkers, The Story of the Montgomery Bus Boycott is another good resource. But you can also do a lot of really good judicious Googling and find a lot of really interesting um, quotes and other resources and accounts online. And if you know how to search and piece it together, that helps as well. The point with this stuff is, because they, they are openly talking about a lot of the tactics on in certain parts of the internet and hiding them in other places, Sometimes you have to do a lot of Googling, and then you have to cross-reference a lot of information. Okay, let's start diving in here. There are three particular points that I'm going to bring up, and these are the ingredients to accomplish really anything, but especially political change, you know, or really anything at all, actually, but especially if it's controversial or if there's a lot at risk. There is courage. There's training. And there's organization. You know, courage is, is pretty self-evident. It's a precondition for anything, but it is not sufficient in itself, as you know, I'm going to make clear here. Um, training training is interesting because, I mean, you're not only are you teaching someone what they need to do, the fact that your training implies infrastructure to train people, and it also implies that their systemic way of capturing, distilling, and transmitting knowledge. Organization implies two things. Organization implies that there are numbers. Um, if it's just one person, you don't necessarily need to really organize, but if it's the more people you add, the more organized you have to be, and it also implies that there is a network with those people, and that's a very important part as well. All three of these ingredients that I'm discussing here, are they work together holistically. You know, every one of them is important, but by themselves, they're insufficient. And a lot of people really get hung up on courage. And courage is incredibly important. But we're going to start talking about that first. Okay, courage. A necessary precondition. What about the situation meets the definition of requiring courage? Well, remember again, this is 1955, Alabama. Segregation is the law of the land. And a law is something, definitionally, that if you refuse to comply or break it, you are subject to law enforcement coming to enforce the law. And these are people, you know, men and women, but men at the time, almost exclusively, that have the training and authority to use physical force. And there are consequences for refusing to comply. We do know that Courage was not in short supply in Montgomery because there were at least five other black women arrested that year for refusing to comply with the local ordinances requiring segregation on buses. 
Undoubtedly, there were more than five that were arrested. We do know of the five, though, that were listed as plaintiffs on the federal lawsuit seeking to end discrimination on buses. It was the Browder versus Gale suit, and the plaintiffs were Aurelia S. Browder, who was the lead plaintiff, Susan McDonald, Mary Louise Smith, Jeanette Reese, and Claudette Colvin, who you may remember from the beginning of this podcast. Aurelia S. Browder was listed as the lead plaintiff because she was generally considered the 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 most sympathetic of them. She was the one most accessible to people. Uh, she was middle-aged and professional. The There were two teenagers and two senior citizens, and it was felt that Browder was the most, you know, the, the best choice as a lead plaintiff. Browder was also a college graduate. She was had gone to Alabama State University, and she was friends with Joanne Robinson, who was one of the major players. We haven't talked about her yet. She was one of the major players in, in organizing and leading the bus boycott. Uh, the, she was the one who actually produced the leaflets that were passed out, and she used, and, and this is, we'll get into this because it's this really interesting. I'm going to talk about this more in, in the organizational um, section of this. But yeah, she printed them up using Alabama State University equipment, uh, Browder was involved with the Women's Political Council and NAACP and a lot of the other local civil rights organizations. So she was chosen as a lead plaintiff for a very specific reason. And, and they chose, she was the middle-aged, and they had orig- originally two people that were chosen as plaintiffs that were teenagers, two people that were chosen as senior citizens, and then Browder, who was kind of the lead plaintiff and the person who was going to be put in front of the cameras and talking to the media the most. And this was a, a very strategic choice. The lawsuit was actually filed February 1st, 1956, three months after the boycott started. And, and they had been prepping for this lawsuit all year. They were looking for the right plaintiffs. And you may be wondering why they did not include Rosa Parks. And this is because the decision was made. They wanted to go straight to federal court. They didn't want to spend years bogged down in state court because they knew they weren't going to win there and they were going to have to go to federal court anyway. So might as well jump ahead. Don't waste all your time with, with these intermediate steps and Rosa Parks if they'd included her with her appeals and everything that were ongoing she would have you know they would have bogged them down she would have required them going to local court first before going to federal court so that's six individual examples of courage and like I said courage is a necessary precondition but it's insufficient by themselves those individual acts of courage would have pretty much changed nothing but I'm sure you've also picked up by now when I'm talking about who they picked up for the lawsuits and, and why Rosa wasn't included and all this other stuff like printing the, the leaflets and everything like that that I'm hinting at. There's a much bigger organization at work here. There's a lot more planning and everything. And that's going to lead us directly into the other two qualities that I mentioned that are necessary, which is training and organization. Okay, let's start off by talking about training. A few months before she was arrested in December, Rosa Parks went to a place called the Hollander Research and Education Center. It's now in New Market, Tennessee, but it was originally, at the time, it was in Monteagle, Tennessee, and it was called the Hollander Folk School. Uh, it was founded in 1932 by a guy named Miles Horton, who was an American socialist uh, and teacher, another guy named Don West, and a Methodist minister, James Dombrowski. The name Folk School comes from a, a very specific type of organizational, um, educational organization in Denmark that is more of a popular style of education. It's more, I guess, um, hands-on, workshoppy style, and it's focused at like the lower classes and the peasantry in in Denmark. And he wanted something like that here that was a less formal form of education. And it was focused more at the working class, and it was heavily focused on workshops and, and you know interactive types of educational programs. And it was more about taking people and giving them tools they need to change, you know, things in their day-to-day life. The Hunter School was, you know, being founded in 1932, it was not really focused on civil rights and desegregation at the time that was not the primary focus you know it's in the middle of the great depression and it was 
found it in a place with a lot of very rural working class. So it's all about labor unions, labor organizing, and things of that nature. One thing that's really forgotten, and we're going to have another podcast on this in the future, one thing that's really overlooked is a lot of people completely forget that it wasn't always like, we think of today like left-wing socialist organizing is something that happens in cities. Rural areas are places that are conservative and Republican or right-wing. It hasn't always been that way. And, you know, there was a point where the rural areas were hotbeds of socialist organizing, like the late 19th, especially the early 20th century. And that's how you got stuff. And, of course, not going to get into it, like the Battle of Blair Mountain is to labor organizing, what the Battle of Athens is to, like, general Republican right-wing gun people. Rosa Parks was not the only person who trained at the Hallander Center from Montgomery. There was also Ralph Abernathy, who is one of the founders of the Montgomery Improvement Association, which was the umbrella organization that helped organize the boycotts. Also, they trained Martin Luther King Jr., who uh, you know who that is, you should know. He Montgomery is what helped propel him to national prominence, and he was the president of the Montgomery Improvement Association. Those three trained there, basically anyone of any prominence it, during the civil rights movement at some point probably took at least one class at the Hollander Center. It was that crucial to what was what was happening at the time in 1950s and what was to come during the 1960s. The instructor for the course that Rosa Parks took, the workshop, was a woman named Septima Clark. Septima Clark is known as the, the grandmother of the civil rights movement. And it's interesting, she went to work there full-time as the director of their workshops. After being fired for refusing to quit her members, she was a teacher. She was fired because she refused to resign from the NAACP. And this is this actually kind of builds on the networking part. She went there and was teaching workshops, and she started this thing called a citizen school, which is basically these little traveling schools that went around the South and taught blacks how to read. But it wasn't just about teaching them to read. While they were teaching them to read, they also taught them about citizenship and voter ways to register for voting, like how all these other little things that it takes to be, you know, not just about literacy, but everything it takes to be a citizen. That's why they were called citizen schools. And that's part of building a network is like building, you know, being useful. A big thing that is often overlooked is if you want people to join with you and follow with you is you have to be useful. You have to be useful to them, provide some sort of skill or something that improves their life in some way. And that's how you start building networks and an organization. I'm going to take another little segue here, and this is an important one. If you remember my episode six, I talked about Jacobin Magazine and how they established reading groups and how they used those reading groups to end up infiltrating the Democratic Socialist of America, something called entryism and taking that organization over. The reading groups that Jacobin set up suspiciously sound a lot like the citizenship schools. And that's because they, they really are the same thing. The very basic same principles are, are at play here. You take a group of people and you there's logistics. Like you have to say, okay, I need a space for X number of people at a certain amount of time between this time block. I have to, you know, I have to bring food and water and everything it takes to keep people in a space for a certain amount of time to bring reading materials all this teaching supplies i have to keep them engaged i have to keep them motivated um all those things those are the basic building blocks of what it takes to organize to be an organizer to be a leader and that's what they were really doing and it was it was not the objective like necessarily the top line stated goal but this is you know one of the side effects of doing this is you're building these little groups of networks of people that know and trust each other. You're building affinity groups. You're building affinity groups. You're building leaders. You're building little groups of cells and leaders and affinity groups all across the South. And this is 1955. It's The civil rights movement is just getting started. It's not really anywhere getting up to where it was like the height of it in like the early 1960s, mid-1960s. But none of that would have happened if they hadn't put the work in in the 1950s. And that's what they're doing is they're planting these little seeds. They're building these little organizations. And these things are going to pay off five, ten years down the road. So Rosa Parks goes to take a two-week workshop at the Hallander Folk School. This workshop was called Racial Desegregation Implementing the Supreme Court Decision. 
there's a couple things, not just about this class, but how they put it on that are very interesting. First thing they do is the Highlander Center was was even then desegregated. Everyone, you know, that's in the South, and this is obviously something that's controversial and illegal. They're teaching these workshops, and white people and black people are sitting next to each other. Whites and blacks are cooking together, eating together, living essentially like we are today. You know, it's like total integration. That is something, and this this is going to come up again later. That's a that's several things. That's that's something that, and I've mentioned this before in a couple other episodes. It's called prefigurative direct action, and it's about really being the change you want to see in the world. And this is actually what she did when she refused to give up her seat on the bus. That was something called prefigurative direct action. And, you know, direct action, again, I'm going to hit on this again. This is like when you're not trying to go through the electoral process or like trying to convince everyone else to go along with you. You just do like, like I want to have the world look a certain way. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to act like the world is the way I want it to be. Um, so that's that's what they were doing. It's like they're... This is the world we envision. We're going to act like this here at the Hollander Center. Rosa Parks considered the teacher for this workshop, Septima Clark, to be an inspiration. And to touch back on the courage thing again, Septima Clark was working at the Hollander Center. She was the full-time director of workshops because she had lost her teaching job because she refused to give up her membership in the NAACP. She had a 40-year teaching career, and she lost that, and she lost her pension. And she was willing to sacrifice that because she believed so much in what she was doing. That's yet another example of courage. So this is a woman who has exhibited courage, and she's also been trained, and she is now teaching her knowledge to other people. And one thing Seth McClark recalled was when Rosa Parks was there, they actually act, acted out her future arrest. This is three months before this happened. This was right at the beginning of August 1955. And she was already talking and planning about her confrontation and refusal to give up the bus seat. They actually did like a little sketch scenario where she, Rosa Parks actually kind of walked through what she was going to do. So this was not like a, a spur of the moment impulsive thing. This was something she was trained to do. This was something that she was inspired to do. And this was something she had mentally prepared and already put the repetitions in in a formal training environment to prepare herself. Several interesting things that Rosa Parks learned there and that was part of the instruction and discussion was, well, for starters, there's a question um, with a lot of this activism and organizing of gradualism versus immediacy. And what that means by that is like we're all familiar with the concept that, you know, the, the, the boiling the frog where a slow boiling water and that's gradualism. You know, you, you get slowly acclimated to something, kind of the camel nose under the tent. Most people are familiar with that. But the downside of that is gradualism allows people to, to it gives them time to, to react and start building an opposition force to it. Immediacy is something that it, it goes quicker and it doesn't give your opponent time to react and respond to it. That takes preparation. And the difference here, you know, gradualism takes longer. And this is something, like like I said, most people are familiar with this. It's it's, a, it's something that we, we assume is the standard state of things, and maybe for most things it is. Immediacy is one of the things, like, once you, once you have pounced and you've taken what you want and you've enforced the change you want, that it's harder to switch back to the old way if things have been changed. It doesn't give people time to react. A great example of immediacy in practice is basically what happened this summer. We had the insane wokeism push, the social justice insanity, they're tearing down all the statues and just crazy stuff, Lincoln and George Washington, and just they were burning churches all over and in D.C., and it felt like everyone was kind of like frozen. Well, we didn't have the organization and we didn't have the consensus pushback against that. So they had about three months there where they were running wild. And like now there is like becoming more of an organized pushback to that. But they did have that opening where they could just run without real opposition. It felt like everyone was kind of paralyzed. I mean, there of course, there's lots of other stuff going on. There's the COVID lockdowns, the insanity around that. But that's an example of immediacy. And this also kind of ties into something 
you know, we're so used to, especially like if you're centrist or right-leaning, we're so used to like, debate me, debate me, let's have a discussion, and then like we'll come to a decision or a vote, and then we'll do the change. And one thing that they found, and like this is this is something to remember, is that it doesn't, it usually doesn't actually work that way. A lot of times it doesn't. Instead of like trying to talk and deciding on an action, do the action. Don't 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 think about like we think. Let's change attitudes first, then we'll decide to do the action. Something that they have done a lot, and this is what a lot of hard lefties do. This is what like a lot of the civil rights people did. They're like don't change attitudes. Don't focus on changing attitudes. Focus on changing conditions. And then if you can force those conditions, over time the attitude will change. I had a little bit of deja vu when I was researching this, and I saw the point about change the conditions and then the attitudes will change later once you've changed the conditions. That's almost the exact same sentiment that Mark Bray expressed. Like Mark Bray is the author of the Antifa, the anti-fascist handbook. He's an Antifa apologist, really hard lefty guy. I have an autographed copy of his book. It's it's a long story. Sorry for a different time. He hates me. I called the cops on him. It was pretty hilarious. I thought it was funny. I'm sure he didn't. But long story, I'll tell it some other time. But he expressed the very same thing in his in his book. He said, you know, don't bother changing attitudes. He's like, go out there and force people to take care of the problem, change the material conditions, make sure the people you hate can't do what they want. And, you know, the the general public, even if you're controversial, he said over time the general public will come around to your way of thinking. And it's a very similar sentiment that's expressed here. And it's something I think more people should be aware of. And this is because we're so used to, again, like debate me, let's have a discussion, we'll decide what to do, and then we'll change it. But that's they flip that upside down and they do it completely backwards from what we usually think the way things should be done. A couple last points on here that we're taught in this class is be careful who you use, like what, what you use people for in their roles. You know, not not every role is interchangeable and every person has the right skills to do every job and, and this is something like we, we we have a tendency to think everyone should be able to do everything or everyone should do the most hardest job possible people have different skills people have different abilities people have different amounts of willingness to do and like don't take people that are controversial or have criminal records and put them into something that's very visible they need to go doing like infrastructure and background work. Like they don't need to be out there on the front lines with the cameras in their face. For example, Claudette Colvin, she was a young girl and she was actually a mentee of Rosa Parks through the NAACP Youth Council. But she was 15 and she was kind of known as a very outspoken, like she would have like these public tantrums. And she apparently when she was arrested in March of 1955 had like a very, and of course she was probably justified in doing so. But it was a very dramatic, very angry, you know, outburst as she was being dragged off the bus. And then like a month or so later, it wound up she was also pregnant by a married white man. So that was an insanely polarizing and just like a, a very dangerous live wire. They couldn't they could not obviously, you know, push this married I mean this unmarried pregnant teenager, fifteen year old girl in the public eye that's known to be very aggressive. I mean, it just was not, you know, optics. In terms of optics, it was not the best optics. So they decided not to really start the bus boycott with her because even Rosa Parks admitted, like, this would have been really bad for us if we tried to build the boycott around her. So that was a big thing. It's like, people like that, she ended up getting into, she got involved with the Browder versus Gale lawsuit, but she was not one of the people that was put out there for the forefront of the boycott and another thing is and this is really interesting too like they talked about people should be economically independent not have a lot of debts or anything like that and it's very fascinating because what they're you know what was happening in the south at the time was basically cancel culture people like you know septima clark was canceled she refused to leave the naacp and she lost her job that was a lot of the, a lot of the things that happened in the civil rights era in the 1950s 1960s was essentially cancel culture pre-internet people there was economic and social pressure that were was applied to people that you know even if someone like you had a legal right to do something you effectively could not do it because you know you would lose your job or you would get evicted or so and that's that's really a forerunner of what we see today with cancel culture 
So they were really having to learn to be resistant and robust and protect themselves against cancel culture, even in like the 1950s. We've talked about courage. We've talked about training. Let's talk about organization. The very first bus boycott that was discussed for Montgomery was in 1949. Joanne Robinson was the leader of the Women's Political Council, which was a local African-American women's organization in Montgomery and she was the leader and she had gotten kicked off the bus for refusing to follow the rules around segregated passengers so she wanted to start a boycott over it the consensus was at the time that the community wasn't just what just was not ready and nothing was you know, the community wasn't ready they didn't have the infrastructure they needed or anything so they they, they didn't go through with it and the, the Women's Political Council is a is a great example of, of a of an affinity group. You know, I've talked about this before in other podcasts, and I'm going to talk about it more in the future. They were a group of educated female black uh, college professors at the local historically black college, which is Alabama State College. And you know, the, the thing I say about it, about an affinity group is they're people that have something in common. They, it's it's a pre-existing social network that is repurposed towards some type of political or tangible end towards some changing something, and you know so you have these educated women, these educated African American women, at the university, so they know each other. They're they socialize, they know each other, and they probably have some some friendships or, or decent acquaintance. They're all subject to segregation, so that's something that they have in common. And of course, you know, naturally, it's a very natural thing for them to build an affinity group around that. Like we're going to start a council, the Women's Political Council. We have so much in common, and and let's go ahead and start changing, work towards changing the things in our local community that we wish were different. The thing that, and, and this is another thing that you see some so many people get confused around. That when they want to change something, when you like, okay, I, I like someone says, I want to change law X, so I'm going to start a group, you know, people, concerned citizens against law X, and then they start recruiting for that group, and that means you get a bunch of strangers in the group. You get a bunch of sometimes you get weirdos and just, just you know, saboteurs or whatever. So when you start a group and you recruit people to that group, a big chunk of that time when you're trying to get settled and trying to get you know moving is going to be spent in figuring out you know okay what can this person do what are their skills can i trust this person so so much of that early stage when you need to be moving is wasted in vetting people because you know you're you're collecting a bunch of strangers and you don't know they're all in unknown quantities but if you start an affinity group if you start around an affinity group You've got a group of people that you already know. You already know, like, okay, so and so is good at whatever. She's bad at this. She's got access to this, and and that cuts out so much of the stuff when you need to hit the ground and you need to start running. So that that is something that Antifa does a lot, and it's something a lot of different other groups do. But it's it's a really important thing, and that's what the Women's Political Council was. It's it was an affinity group. A huge part of creating any affinity group or joining affinity group or anything you anytime you want to be involved in any type of organization is you have to think like okay what are my skill sets that i can apply that will be useful what assets do i have access to that are helpful and we can leverage well if you're a college professor at a university you've got access to a mimeograph machine you see of course we're, we're talking 1955 alabama there's no there's no facebook there's no social media there's no there's no online tests. I mean, it, it's hard to reach a lot of people very quickly. Like you can't just send out like an email blast. And two, it's like if there's not any printers, like how are you going to turn out all these tens of thousands of leaflets? Well, if you work in a university, what happens at universities? They have to, especially then. Today they do online testing or whatever, but in 1955, a university has to print up thousands of tests. You know, identical sheets of paper. To give to students for students to write their answers on and to get graded by the teacher. So if you're a college professor, you've got access to this mimeograph machine, and that's what she did. Joan Robinson, you know, first she talked to Rosa Parks and she got out because Rosa Parks was, she thought Rosa was an ideal candidate. 
So she got permission from her, like, I'm going to go ahead with the boycott. Are you on board? Rosa said yes. Rosa was someone who was respected in the community by the blacks and the white community. And she was someone who's well-trained and well-spoken. And she was the absolute perfect person to start a boycott over. So Joanne Robson, Thursday night. She goes to Alabama State College, goes down the basement through a mimeograph machine, prints up 50-something thousand leaflets. So, okay, starting Friday morning, they're going to do a one-day boycott the following Monday. How do you distribute these leaflets? Like, how do you get all these leaflets out? Well, this is something, it's true today, and it was especially true then, and it's especially true in the South. The The node for the black community, the network, the community, the, the biggest node in the community is going to be the churches. The churches are tremendous you know, area of influence for a black community. So, well, she she hands out, she gets some of her youth council workers and other students to start running around the local high schools and start handing it out to the black students. Then they have a big meeting Friday night at the local, at the AME Zionist Church, and they have a bunch of the local ministers come. They all have a big powwow. They're on board with it. They hand out thousands of leaflets to the ministers. The ministers get their people involved. And they're running around the whole community giving these things out. Sunday comes. The ministers are up there preaching. They're preaching about religious stuff. And they make a point to throw in, hey, we're going to have a boycott tomorrow, one-day boycott. We may extend it. Of course, there was no plans at this point that they were going to go 13 months. Part of what happened Monday was what's called a structure test, which they had to see, like, they had to gauge, like, how much how motivated people are can we actually pull this off and then we will adjust and go from there so the initial plan is a one-day boycott anyway they, they're passing these they get all of these tens of like 50 something thousand leaflets passed out before the end of the weekend the ministers are hammering on it monday comes and the boycott's a huge success like almost no black people are riding the buses now again blacks make up made up around 70 percent of the riders at the local bus system so there was a huge wallop towards the local bus and towards their towards their you know their pocket bag, po- pocket books. Everyone's ecstatic. They show back up that night at one of the churches, and there's several thousand people meeting at one of the big churches, and they decide they're going to start the Montgomery Improvement Association, which was the organization that was going to organize and manage this boycott and they're like okay we got everyone's on board with it we're going to keep running with it they elect martin luther king jr as the leader and one of the reasons they picked him was you know he's this very young well-spoken man but he was new to the area so he hadn't really been intimidated or hadn't really interacted much with the local power structures and they figured this is someone who's you know and he's young too he's not well established if things go sideways if he has to leave it's not going to be a huge hit to him so he jumps in there, and this is the thing that really made King's national profile, like it, it made his name nationally, was everything that happened in Montgomery. So they start this Montgomery Improvement Association. And part of this too is, and this is where we get into like talking about mainstream hardcore, which is the carpools. Okay, cool. So it's great. You know, everyone, some people walked 14 miles for the boycott. But you can't really expect people to do that every day. I mean, some of them, some of them walked a long ways regardless. But you can't expect people to continue to do that indefinitely. Because what they were doing, one of the plans was, when people are walking and boycotting, that they're going to try, many people will be continue to walk the route and just refuse to get on the buses. So the buses knew, like, okay, the blacks are boycotting the buses. But for the people who were living further away and just couldn't really keep that up, they had to sort of carpool. Important part of this, again, I mentioned this, everyone has to judge for themselves what they can or can't do. Not everyone can get in front of the camera and talk to the media. Uh, some people, you know, they just have to stuff envelopes, and that's okay. Not everyone has the same capabilities. Not everyone has, you know, the same assets to throw towards it. It's, it's a case-by-case basis. And that's why it's so important to have multiple on-ramps. And some people, they don't want to be, they don't want to do anything exciting, but there's always logistical stuff and management stuff that needs to be done. And that is just as valid as some of the straight up there, getting out there in front of everyone and doing it, whatever it is. But one good example of this is the carpooling. The carpooling is something also that 
you could consider like mainstream hardcore. Like people, some people want to do boring stuff. Some people want to do exciting stuff. And you have to give people exciting stuff to do that feels like it's it's you know helpful and useful and maybe a little bit hairy and dangerous but not too insanely dangerous and not something that's really controversial or going to cause a lot of problems and carpooling is a perfect example of that i mean carpooling shouldn't be anything controversially normally but when you're boycotting the the buses and giving people rides and the local power structure is angry about that because you're wrecking them economically they're going to start finding rules to you know rule violations to go after and they started going after the carpoolers uh, another thing and this is a good example of you know everything old is new again and cancel culture was happening in montgomery they did this the insurance companies would start canceling insurance for people that were giving the local blacks carpool rides so one thing the Montgomery Improvement Association did, and this is another thing I keep mentioning, be useful, be useful, find some way to help people and support them. Montgomery Improvement Association managed to work a deal with Lloyd's of London to provide car insurance for the local carpool drivers. Taking care of your people is so important. The people that were taking part in the boycott were taken care of because the Montgomery Improvement Association was arranging carpool rides for them if they needed it. The carpool drivers were being taken care of because the insurance companies, they were finding insurance companies for them to cover them. If the local insurance companies drop them, you know, these carpool drivers, they get to go do, because, you know, they're getting hassled by the cops. So they get to do something cool and transgressive. And it, it's, it's hardcore and more direct action in the sense of, like, you get to go do something exciting. But it's not really dangerous or that controversial and that, and that's really what you want to do because people that are looking for hardcore experiences are going to if you don't give them a good option like that they're going to go out and create their own and it, it may not be useful or helpful so this goes on for 13 months there's a lot of negotiation going on with montgomery the the city council and the mayor and, and they're they're being very resistant like they'd lose a lot of money they lost like seven million bucks or something in like 1950s terms, so they were just getting, you know, it's like over 70% of their riders were not riding, and they're getting wrecked financially. But they're but they're being very stubborn. And the thing that ended, and, and this is the ironic part of it, the thing that ended the segregation of the Montgomery buses was the lawsuit that was filed. You know, the Browder versus Scale lawsuit. The Supreme Court ruled that segregating buses was unconstitutional and that ended that so if the boycott itself ended up not being responsible for the desegregation of the buses what good was it for them like most people may think darn it it was a failure it was no good and this is something a lot of people miss too there's so much stuff people miss but Again, remember, this is the early 19... This is 1955. It's very early in the Civil Rights era. This organization is not really there. The stuff that you'll see happen and come out in the next 5 to 10 years, that big, massive civil rights push, didn't exist. But this is where it started. And one thing, you know, even if a rally... Like, people ask me all the time, like, Aaron, what's a, what's a rally or a protest good for? It doesn't actually change anything. Well... Maybe having a protest or rally doesn't actually change the thing you're protesting against or rallying for. Maybe not directly, but protests and rallies are, are can be very good at demonstrating capability to other people. It's very good at also networking and movement building. Like I think I mentioned earlier, you know, it's so many of the people like in the Bay Area that work together on other projects now met at either Trump rallies or free speech rallies. And they learn to trust each other. And, you know, I've, I've met people all over the country at Politicon or at, you know, other rallies like in D.C. And we stayed in touch. And like in like in the, the Richmond gun rights rally last I was I was there, met so many people, made so many connections and big parts of that. There's lots of movement building and networking that is done at these things. And one thing that's really important is the, the, the Montgomery Improvement Association, even though it didn't directly and like not not the boycott the boycott did not end 
the segregation the lawsuit did, but the Montgomery Improvement Association, all those people, they were also behind the lawsuit as well. And this is a thing of diversity of tactics. It's like working on several different tactics at the same time, and maybe one will be successful, or maybe two or three, they'll all work together. Instead of just choosing one tactic and focusing on that, choose two or three or four tactics and like have some people some people are great lawyers like have them work in the in the courts some people are great street organizers or they're great at making signs and again this goes back into the on-ramps thing some people want to go out and rally in the street and there's places for that let them go do that like that will help with the pr like some people are, are great at talking to the media or live streaming or writing and let them do that stuff i mean let everyone do what they're good at, you know, like help organize that and make sure it's directed in the same direction. And all of these pieces need to be working together holistically. So they, they spend 13 months working on this. They've got a seriously dialed in organization at this point. And Montgomery Improvement Association, like they, they, they end the Montgomery boycotts. But they're not going to stop there. You've already built this thing. Don't just disassemble it. Keep it going. So they create the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which was the, the, the Montgomery Improvement Association was one of the founding members of that. They joined that like a year later and to keep building on all that stuff. And that's really the beginning of the nucleus. You can see this. It starts, change happens really slowly. And then you sort of meet this like inflection point and then things start to speed up because it, it, it works, you know, it starts to build on each other like an, ex, like an exponential growth. So the three things I talked about, courage, training, organization, courage, you've got the six women, you know, you have the five women that refused to comply with, with segregate or basically all of them, but the ones in the lawsuit, you got the five that were involved in the lawsuit initially, they refused to comply. Then Rosa Parks, who was the impetus for the boycott, you've got her, that that's courage. You've got Joanne Robinson who risked her job to go down there and, you know, print up 50-something thousand leaflets with, on the mimeograph machine that was, I guess, technically could be like theft of state resources or whatever, like technically, but anyway, she she did that. She went down there and risked a lot to do it, and she had to kind of dial back later because she was already kind of, kind of on the bubble, as it were, with her activism. You have Seth McClark, who gave up 40 years of seniority and lost her pension and her 40-year career because she refused to resign from the NAACP. You've got the courage of the people that were in the carpool drivers. Like that, that's courage. Like that's, that's a good, those are great examples of courage. Training. Training, you've got the Hollander School. Like that's where most of these people trained and that was also something they shared in common. You know, like Hosa Parks went there. She trained there. Martin Luther King trained at the Hollander Center. Ralph Abernathy, which worked with Martin Luther King to found the Montgomery Improvement Association, also trained there. So there's a lot of trainers at this point, that, people that had trained at that center, and and they came back, and part of what they do too is like train the trainer stuff. Like you teach people how to do stuff, but you're also teaching people to be leaderships, to be leaders in their conference, you know, in, in their area. Um, and you, you have the Christian schools that I mentioned, which was all about training. She was like Septima Clark was traveling across the South, training people and building these little Jacobin style reading groups, which was kind of an analog to the same thing. So she's going around doing that. So that's that's training. All you're getting this base level of knowledge to as many people as possible. Not everyone has to be an expert, but there is a very base level set of knowledge that you're spreading to as many people as possible through as many different channels. So you got organization. Rosa Parks, I don't think I mentioned this earlier, Rosa Parks had been involved with the NAACP since the early 1940s. She was actually the state secretary for the state NAACP, so she was well-known in the community. She was a well-known activist. She was the mentor to Claudette Colvin. She founded the NAACP Youth Council. She was also working. She knew Joanne Robinson. Because, you know, of course, these people are civil rights activists and they're all connected. And again, it's this is very early stage civil rights stuff, but they are still connecting and networking together. You have Joanne Robinson, who's, you know, she did not found the Women's Political Council, but she took it over a couple years after it was founded. And, you know, she, she was a leader of that. She had all her people that were in the WPC with her. 
So you've got all the, again, you've got the black community and their churches, which even today, you know, the churches are definitely the center, the node for the black community, especially in the South. And you've got these people and they're, they're connected and they're working together. They, they have that first one day boycott kind of as a structure test. They're like, can we even do this? And it's a huge hit. And then cool. That's when they, they, they held off creating the Montgomery Improvement Association. They knew it was ready to go. Like this isn't just a one day thing. We can actually do this. We've got the buy-in. Let's formalize this. That's when Martin Luther King got elected as the president of the MIA. And that's when it took off from there. But all of this stuff started because all these people are building their little affinity groups and they're getting networked together and connected. Courage, training, and organization. That's the three ingredients you need to change stuff or even to make any progress on any particular goal you have. Part of that, you know, the, the sad part of a lot of this, like I mentioned earlier, is so much of this stuff gets buried and it gets glossed over as like, these spontaneous uprisings and occasionally they do happen but you know it, it's not and I guess there's also a fear too that you know if you start talking about something that's not spontaneous so many people just assume they're astroturfed or false and that's not necessarily true either I mean they do happen as well but legitimate organizing and people that want to do change like they put a lot of work into this stuff and when you actually read about a lot of what happened in the early stage civil rights era, like they were building a lot of stuff from scratch. The whole Montgomery bus boycott, everything that happened around that time, a bunch of dedicated people working together, working hard, collaborating, getting training, building the stuff they needed. And five, you know, it, it paid off for them. And instead of disbanding everything they built, they leveraged that into working on future projects. And it ended up snowballing, and that's how you get, you know, this this stuff starts building. They're building, they're planting little seeds around the country, and it sprouted. And then in the 60s, they had a successful civil rights movement. But that's really, like, that's the important part. There's so much hard work that goes into this, so much coordination, so much training. Training, organization, and courage. That's really what it boils down to. I hope you found today's podcast informative and illuminating. And I have some more interesting projects coming up very soon I think you'll be excited about. If you would love to support me by buying me the equivalent of a mocha frappuccino, I would be incredibly grateful. My cash app is $eesmith4, that's the number 4. And I have a Patreon, that's patreon.com backslash eesmith4, again that's the number 4. Anything and all support will be greatly appreciated. Thank you so much for listening and please tune in next time.